before we get to today's show, just a quick reminder that you can get the most comprehensive digest of China-Africa news delivered daily to your email inbox. Try it out at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Fenstaden, CAPS Managing Editor, joining us as always from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, you entitled your memo to our readers today in the newsletter as Debt Week. Buckle up. It's Debt Week, you said. And boy, oh boy, is it Debt Week. Let's start right away with some new data that came out from the new Chinese Loans to Africa database that's managed by Boston University's Global Development Policy Center. They have some brand new data from 2020, which is the latest year that available on Chinese loans in Africa. Let me just go through some of the highlights very quickly here. 11 new loan commitments worth $1.9 billion from Chinese lenders to various African stakeholders, that's governments, policy banks, state-owned enterprises. That was done in 2020. Now, by the way, that is down 77% from the year previous in 2019, when Chinese creditors lent $8.2 billion of loans to various African borrowers. So even though Chinese lending to African countries is down sharply, I mean, again, almost 80%, the authors of the BU report want to emphasize, and they said this repeatedly in their story, that they don't believe that China will stop all lending to the continent, as some have suspected. Now, a lot of lending in other parts of the world, like in Latin America, has in fact stopped. So Africa is, even though $1.9 billion is a lot less than $8.2 billion, at least there is some going there. Let me give you a few other data points from their new report. From 2000 to 2020 now, that's been updated, Chinese financiers signed loan commitments worth $160 billion with 49 African governments and five African regional banks. And here's what's interesting. Overall, the China Exim Bank and the China Development Bank dominated as the key source of lending, accounting for 79% of all loans. So one of the things that we've been hearing about over the years is going to be more Chinese lenders in the space, but right now 79% for the past two decades from two of the country's major policy banks. And most of the loans went to the transport, power, mining, and ICT sectors. That's the telecommunications sector. They made up 74% of the total commitments. So lots of new information on the BU website. Please look into the show notes. We'll put links to that brand new updated Chinese Loans to Africa database. Again, that's over at Boston University's Global Development Policy Center. Now, let's look at the situation in Zambia because there's been some very important developments there. People's Bank of of China Governor Yi Gang, last week he informed attendees at the annual spring meetings of the International Monetary Fund that took place in Washington that China will now participate 
in a new creditors committee. This is a very important breakthrough because it's something that uh, certainly the Zambians have been waiting for for quite some time. Zambia's debt is believed to be around $32 billion, with about $17 billion owed to external creditors like the Chinese, also the World Bank, and bondholders who own uh, Eurobond notes. The Chinese account for somewhere around $6.6 billion of that, which makes them the largest bilateral creditor, but again, just about a third of the total external debt and a relatively small portion of the total $32 billion. Now, the creditor committee is a big deal because it finally shows some progress. And this is something very, very important because Zambian finance minister Situmbeko Musokutani, he came to Washington last week, frankly, a little bit PO'd by the fact that after months and months, there had been no progress. His hope was that he signed an IMF deal that a creditor committee deal that deals with the private creditors and also multilaterals and the Chinese would follow suit. Now, he spoke with the folks over at the Atlantic Council. This was before the announcement was made by Igang. So let's take a listen to the frustrations by Finance Minister Situmbeki Musukotwani. Unfortunately. We are now in the fourth month from the time when we thought uh, would quickly move to uh, the discussion with the creditors. Nothing is happening. So we've come here to complain uh, and also uh, to discuss with the leaders of the G20, the leaders of the com uh, common framework. You made a commitment. We also made a commitment. We have lived up to our part of the commitment in terms of implementing those things that we agreed we would do. Can we also see a movement, can we see action on the part of those who helped, those who said they were going to assist? So the big holdup was not very clear as to what was the problem, but there was a hint that it might be the Chinese because just a few weeks ago, the UK's Minister for Africa, Vicky Ford, was in Lusaka, and she was speaking on Hot FM radio in, in the capital and said, and these are her words, one creditor is taking a bit more time to make a decision. Though she didn't specify who that creditor is, Cobus, everybody suspected it was the Chinese. The Chinese have been reluctant participants in this process for a number of different reasons, but it does look like, Cobus, finally there is some progress. Yes, it's it's heartening. I have to say, I think I think a lot of a lot of people in in Africa have been very worried about the Zambian situation. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how it moves from now on, because you know one one of one of the things you know that 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 really can one of the data points that really changed the way that I thought about the Zambian situation was uh, was data by uh, by our guest today, Deborah Bartigam, um who you know who, when she pointed out in, uh, a few months ago that there's 18 different Chinese creditors involved in the Zambian situation. So so kind of getting all of them on board and then working out how they got all of them on board is going to be fascinating. So in addition to Zambia and the new debt database, also earlier this month, there was a brand new report coming from Deborah Braudigam at the Johns Hopkins University China Africa Research Initiative on Kenya and one of the most important debt controversies that have involved the Chinese going back years now relating to the port of Mombasa. Deborah and a team of scholars and practitioners in international commercial law, auditing, project finance, spent nearly two years collecting and investigating all of the available data about the SGR contracts to find out what's going on. The reports are out. They are absolutely illuminating. And we are 
thrilled to have most members of the team with us today. Deborah Braudigam, again, is the founding director of the China-Africa Research Initiative and joins us from Washington. Welcome back to the program, Deborah. Thank you, Eric. Glad to be here. And we're also joined by Vijay Balaki, who is the co-founder of the global development consulting firm Athena Infonomics that advises development institutions. And he played a very important role in this report on the accounting side. And a very good morning to you, Vijay, from Washington as well. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me. And finally, also joining us from Paris is Laure Durand, who is a lawyer at Cathay Lex and a member of the Paris Bar and kind of played the role on looking at the legalities of these contracts. Welcome to the program, Laure. Glad to be with you. Very quickly, Deborah, just before we get to the research report that you did, I'd like to get your take on the situation regarding Zambia and how you are interpreting the events. As Kobus mentioned, you did some amazing research last year on the Zambian debt situation. It's been one of the countries that you've been following most closely. What's your takeaway from the purported announcement by Igong that China will join the creditor committee? Well, first of all, I'm very happy to hear this. Uh, Zambia has been waiting a long time. When Chad joined the uh, Ask for Common Framework, they only waited for three months. And when Ethiopia asked, they waited for seven months. And really, uh, Zambia's been waiting for 14 months to have its creditor committee come together. And it's even, it's not quite there yet. So I was happy to hear that the Chinese have agreed to join because I do think they've been the holdup there. Now, from what's happening on the Chinese side, uh, domestically, you have the internationalists who I think if it was up to them, they would have joined the Paris Club long ago because they see it's, very, it's a very practical solution to trying to deal with debt problems in borrowing countries. But then you've got the conservatives who are very wary of an organization like the Paris Club, which really, which has uh, imposed conditionality on African countries. It's really, it's a membership group of the rich countries, so they're reluctant to go. And so the common framework was a, a compromise, but still you saw this reluctance. And the second issue that I think has been stalling things is that the Chinese have voiced on a number of occasions that they're pretty unhappy with the burden sharing so far under the DSSI in particular, because they, even though they are the major bilateral creditor, they aren't the major creditor in many instances. It's the World Bank or the bondholders. And those two groups have suspended no payments during the, the period in which the other members, uh, the other major creditors had suspended debt service payments during the pandemic. So they were unhappy with the burden sharing aspect. So the fact that they've come to the table now in Zambia, I think it's, it's a very good sign. What it does not yet mean is that they've been able to coordinate all of the Chinese creditors. Because as you mentioned, there are 18 since 2000 that have uh, lent money to Zambia. Not all of those are still active. I think we have at least 13 that are still, uh, that Zambia still owes money to. But um, the G20, the common framework negotiations are only going to include the official bilateral creditors. And for China, that is only China Exim Bank and then SIDCA, which is the China International Development Agency, which is their foreign aid agency. So only two of those, anywhere from 13 onward, only two of those creditors will actually be part of the common framework negotiations. And the others will be lumped in with the commercial creditors, like the bondholders. And so far, in the case of Chad, at least, we've seen that those commercial creditors, they're still trying to conclude negotiations 
with the commercial creditors. So I think the rest of the Chinese will be in that group. And Deborah, do you foresee that these Chinese actors joining this this debt committee, is that going to change the opacity of, of Chinese lending? Will, will it make them like more amenable to, to, to sharing information as they've resisted up to now? It does look as though they're going to have to, because that is how these organizations work. Um, in the case of Chad, we only had four official bilateral creditors, and they were able to come to a, a conclusion pretty quickly. And so the Chinese were, they were not one of the leaders of that. It was led by, I think, Saudi Arabia and France. And so um, they were able to corral the other lenders. And so they, I would assume in order to get to a result, they had to share information. And the IMF also plays a very important role here. When I've been in discussions with the IMF, they have not complained that they've had difficulty getting information on Chinese lending from the borrowers. So I think, uh, and Zambia was a, a particular case we were discussing. So I do think with the IMF coming in, and the IMF really is the technical part of these common framework negotiations. They're the ones that come up and say, okay, this is what the country, this is what all the lenders need to do. This is what the borrower needs to have happen to get to a sustainable debt situation. So they're really the ones that, that need all that information. It's not like you've got all of the, you know, the other bilateral creditors there doing all the calculations as they sit in the room. It's all done by the IMF beforehand. So we'll continue to follow the Zambia story as it unfolds because it looks like there is some progress that's now taking place. Uh, follow us on the website and Twitter for updates on that. Let's turn our attention now to the port of Mombasa, the Standard Gauge Railway, and really one of the most controversial loans in, in what China's done in Africa over its 20-year history. The flagship lending project for the Chinese in Africa was the Standard Gauge Railway that was a multi-billion dollar project as part of the Belt and Road. And it was a very exciting project for Kenyan President Uru Kenyatta, but it has turned out to be, again, one of the more controversial ones, in part because back in 2018, I think it was, yes, 2018, there was a leaked letter that warned that the Kenya Port Authority's assets, which also include the Port of Mombasa, risked being taken over by the China Exim Bank if Kenya defaulted on the SGR loans. Deborah and her team for years have been kind of chipping away at this, but now this new report finally puts it to bed. Deborah, very quickly, because we want to get to other members of the team, can you just give us a little bit of background what led up to today and this report that you've just published on the Port of Mombasa? Sure, Eric. Uh, as you mentioned, um, I in particular got interested in this back in December 2018 when this very uh, peculiar letter was leaked um, on social media. And it had some clauses or it had some sections. This was a letter, a management letter, um, which would, been, would have been given out with the draft audit report by the auditor general. And uh, it had some language that was very technical and very hard to understand. And I remember later talking to Vijay about this, who knows all of this language. And I said, Vijay, could you, well, the, the letter itself um, said, had this clause about if Kenya defaults on the loans that China Exim Bank will become a principal in uh, or over Kenya Ports Authority. And then uh, Kenya Ports Authority's assets will be at risk of takeover by China Exim Bank. And there were a few other things in there, but that was the gist of it. And so I, I remember asking Vijay, can you just translate this into common language for us? And he said, well, basically, this is mumbo jumbo. <laughs> it really doesn't, it, it doesn't really mean anything. 
uh, in technical terms. So that was one of the illuminating moments. But in any case, the, um, this report came out. And so we started, we didn't have the loan contracts ourselves, but uh, there were people in Kenya who had seen them. And they did mention that there was no uh, discussion of Mombasa port at all in these contracts. But they then pointed to what's called the waiver of sovereign immunity, which we may get into uh, in our discussion today. But this is a very general clause, which is common in international loan contracts. And they said the, the waiver of sovereign immunity makes Mombasa port at risk, in essence. And so it, the, what, what ended up happening was that these contracts and the mentions of them that came out in the report were all very complex. And it, it turned I didn't understand them, you didn't understand them, and it turned out we needed to go to the experts. And so that's when I started putting together a, a team to look into all of the reports, the auditor general's report, the other pieces of these complex contracts that we had. And since we only had pieces, uh, we had to do this as kind of uh, like you would look at a crime scene. You put uh, all these different pieces up and then trying to map out what actually happened. And it was a fascinating experience working with a, an international lawyer, Law and Vijay, on this. And I think we were able to, to through mapping all of the different contracts uh, that we had pieces of, we were able to get to a pretty firm conclusion about the role that MAMA support actually plays in this complex arrangement. Laure, can you give us an idea of, of what the role of Mombasa support actually is? Like what, what kinds of, like, if, if, it's not gonna, if it's not in danger of being seized, what role it, does it play? So I think what role it plays and what is the risk exposure it has are two slightly different questions. So I think we should uh, address one uh, in, in, in one after the other. What role it plays it is one of the commercial participants to a greater financial organizations that is uh, designed to finance and um, organize the repayment of the loan that has been put in place to support the construction of the railway. So uh, KPA is one of the commercial participants to a, gr a greater commercial project. That's one thing. It's exposure. Uh, is that of any commercial player that ventures into uh, some complicated business construction. So it has some exposure because any business uh, project is risky by nature. Uh, the level of business that you get might not be exactly what you anticipate. You may take a loss financially on the business, but that's different from being offered as a sacrificial goat uh, and having your main assets seized to secure somebody else's project. In this case, what we see, just from looking at the documents that were made, avail made available to us, is that the port authority um, is um, purchasing some freight transportation services from the Kenya Railway. And this purchase of service uh, is within the frame of its activity um, as a logistician and as a conveyor of goods from one its main port um, to the dry port um, in, uh, in Nairobi. So that's its role here. So just to be clear here, the port itself was never at risk of being surrendered to the China Exim Bank or any Chinese entity over a default on payment law. Is that correct? I cannot say that I saw anything in any of the uh, documents that were available on this project that would support this view. Uh, the 
port is a participant in the commercial operation. In this way, it can be said that it's here to guarantee the financial flow that will generate the monies to repay the loan because it is one of the um, business active entities that will generate the revenues on which the loan will be repaid. But it is certainly not offered as a collateral to the railway project. And that is consistent with the research that we've also heard from aid data, where it's the revenue, not the asset itself, that the Chinese are going after in the event of an inability to repay some of these loans. So it's not the physical assets. This came up with the Entebbe Airport as well. Vijay, let's come to you in terms of the work that you did on the project. This question of the waiver of sovereign immunity is one that comes up a lot in the discussions. Deborah brought it up in, in, in her comments Um, This has been an issue in Nigeria, in Uganda, and also in Kenya that the media and on social media and the masses really latch onto as a point of concern and contention. Can you talk to us a little bit about the role that these sovereign immunity clauses play in these contracts and what they are and what they aren't? I think the sovereign immunity is a standard requirement, you know, sort of waiver of that is a standard requirement. And as Laura has explained, you do have certain guarantees coming in from project assets, uh, which are uh, securitized, uh, you know, not KPS assets, but basically the assets that KRC has probably constructed with the support of this loan uh, that the uh, Kenyan government has received from China Exim Bank. Uh, and, and those projects, you know, by design, uh, given that this is a typical project finance structure, would be, um, uh, you know, uh, securitized uh, by the uh, lender. So uh, when that happens, and if there is a situation of a default, uh, then in, in general, international project finance, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, context, uh, the, uh, the lender has got the rights to proceed against those assets that have been secured um, for the loan. Um, and, and typically, the government's sovereignty, uh, you know, should not prevent them from actually proceeding to benefit out of the secured assets. So it's it has to be only kind of understood in that narrow context. And it doesn't mean that basically Kenya is giving up its sovereignty, um, uh, you know, just for the sake of receiving this um, uh, loan uh, from China. Deborah, in, in general, how different is this loan from from other maybe let's say non-chinese kind of lending commercial lending um around the world like where you know so much has been made about the like about the the uniqueness of of chinese lending practices um but in in some in in your writing around this issue you make the point that actually it's not necessarily that that unique like where where does the difference lie and where do the similarities lie i think that um Many who have been looking at infrastructure projects around the world have looked at projects financed by the World Bank. And the World Bank uh, actually has many ways to, um, to secure its loans. Um, for example, their preferred creditor, and they are the first to be repaid, at least they're supposed to be, by any country. So no other uh, lender should be put ahead of the World Bank or the IMF. 
But um, when you're looking at other sources of project finance, um, when it's coming from commercial banks, they have uh, a number of ways in which they try to, in, in which they set up these projects so that they can generate revenue. These are, in particular, projects that generate revenues um, so that the revenues generated by the project are going to go to repay the loan. And I, I spoke with a number, not only the people on our team, um, but a number of other people who work in international project finance. And there were uh, several takeaways from that. One was that this waiver of sovereign immunity clause that we were just hearing about. And this, this clause needs to be in, in every international commercial loan contract by a, a commercial lender because governments are sovereign states. And one of the benefits that they have under international law is that they can't actually be compelled to answer to a lawsuit in another country. And so um, that's why you need to waive that. That's called sovereign immunity. You need to waive that sovereign immunity in order to uh, appear in a law court or arbitration. And I think in, in the case um, of Kenya and in many other cases, we're actually not talking about a, a lawsuit per se, but we're talking about an arbitration, which could be about any aspect of the project. It doesn't have to be about non-payment, but to arbitrate any dispute so to do that uh, outside of the country, you need to waive that sovereign immunity. And so you find um, not only the waiver of sovereign immunity, but these particular uh, structures. And what, uh, what Vijay was able to illustrate for us in this particular, this Kenyan project, was uh, how common these take or pay agreements are. So Lore was talking about how the... Um, the standard gauge railway had as part of this complex uh, deal, they had the Kenya Ports Authority, which was their major customer. So the Kenya Ports Authority came in to help um, guarantee that there would be enough revenues to repay the loan uh, by taking by guaranteeing that it would take some of the services provided by the railway. So this is called a take. Uh, or pay agreement. So the other part of the, the agreement is if they didn't take those services, they would still pay the amount that they'd guaranteed to pay. So this take or pay agreement between Kenya Railway Authority and Kenya Ports Authority is um, it's totally under Kenyan law. It's an arrangement between those two companies, but it's part of the overall loan package. And so what we saw was that this kind of take or pay agreement is, is very common in project finance around the world. So that's the kind of thing you don't see very often in a World Bank project. And then it requires all of those different um, the things like an escrow account where the revenues are sort of protected. Um, and then the, the repayment comes out of these escrow accounts. And all of these are very complex terms. We explain them all in our paper at great length. Uh, but they are very common. And as a, another lawyer who, um, who we talked to about this project said, you know, these are the gold standard elements of international project finance, the take or pay agreement or an offtake agreement, the waiver of sovereign immunity. There's nothing different about these. So if there's nothing different, Deborah, I don't understand why in Kenya, Uganda, and also in Nigeria, there have been just ongoing dramas that are years long that people are convinced that their national assets are at risk of being taken if... The fact is, as you pointed out, that in many contracts, these same terms exist. What is behind the anxiety 
related to the Chinese loans that makes it different from the others, in your view? Well, I think it all goes back to Hambantota in Sri Lanka. <laughs> and, uh, and that, um, that, again, a very complex uh, contract and arrangement um, and a very complex history, which I won't relate here. I've, I've, just, I've written about this at length in other places. But this was very poorly reported uh, by the New York Times uh, and others as an asset seizure. So when Sri Lanka ended up concessioning this port to a Chinese company, uh, when there was a change of government and they decided they didn't uh, want to carry on this port any longer as a public enterprise. Um, so they sold it to a Chinese company. And this was called an asset seizure by the New York Times because uh, assess, uh, assuming that Sri Lanka wasn't able to pay. At the time, that wasn't, uh, they were not in default on this loan. They, just, they had decided that the port was not making money, which was true, and they didn't want to have it any longer on their books. So this interpretation then became highly politicized. It was written about by an Indian pundit. The New York Times circulated that story. And then uh, it just carried on. So now that fear, I think, has disseminated around the world that China is, going to, is deliberately sending out these loans and they are doing it in order to seize these assets. And that's, um, that's not what uh, people who do research on these topics, uh, whenever you look into these more deeply, we, we see no evidence that that intention was ever there. But the, I think the bottom line is that these are very complex. You know, we have people doing master's degrees, law degrees, in order to understand how to uh, construct these projects. And in the, in the journalism community, in the um, NGO community, in the activist community, you, you usually don't have people with those kinds of skills. And it took, I didn't understand these things at all when I first started doing research on it. So it's taken a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of um, desire to understand, I think, to dig into it. And not everyone's willing to put that time in. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Bonjour tout le monde. This is Jérôme Emma, host of the Afrique Chine podcast. If you speak French or if you just want to practice your French, then join me every week for the only French language podcast on everything going on with the Chinese in Africa. We are talking about mining, politics, culture, education, you name it, we are covering it all. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and also follow us on Twitter at AfriqueShin. That's Afrique with a K or online at projetafriqueshin.com. Vijay, we've seen these kind of con contradictory, or from my position, kind of the contradictory kind of different kind of signals coming from the Standard Gauge Railway in terms of its profitability. So on the one hand, we see like really healthy kind of passenger numbers um, and then at the same time a lot of worries being being raised about the sustainability of, of its freight uh, business. So I was wondering what kind of pressures are on the, the Kenyan railway authorities and the other stakeholders to, to, to keep the project you know kind of afford like to keep the project viable commercially viable like what level of viability do they actually have to reach what level of profit do they have to reach for for you know for it to, to move ahead smoothly absolutely so when you look at large-scale infrastructure projects uh, such as the sgr um, i think you'll need to kind of look at it from two different lens so you've got the the economic case lens, and then you've got the financial case lens. 
So, you know, if you look at the World Bank's um, reporting on infrastructure projects uh, across emerging markets, I think it's it's uh, pretty evident that every dollar of investment that you make into strategic infrastructure, large-scale infrastructure, uh, would result in a significant multiplier effect um, uh, for the entire economy. And I definitely think the SGR project uh, qualifies to be called as a, a strategic uh, large-scale infrastructure project. Uh, so I think uh, when you're looking at the feasibility, uh, and in this case, remember that the borrower is actually Kenyan government, so it's it's a sovereign loan. Um, and and I, I'm sure that when Kenyan government is looking at the feasibility, they're definitely looking at it at the overall kind of economic value addition for the Kenyan nation, right? Um, and But if you come down to the financial feasibility, limited to the scope of uh, the revenue channels that are available uh, for this project, um, one of which is your um, uh, you know, freight revenues and the other is, of course, passenger revenues, it's, I guess, pretty evident, um, uh, you know, upfront that passenger uh, you know, charges uh, and and freight uh, revenue alone would be insufficient to cover the overall costs of the project. Incidentally, what we did, we did a quick back of the envelope kind of um, assessment of uh, uh, what the financial feasibility looks like by, you know, picking up different um, reports and information that uh, we had access to. And we found that basically the passenger revenue and the freight revenue do not, I mean, probably just about covers the operating cost, the operating expenses of the project, whereas the entire loan um, repayment and the interest cost of the loan is coming from uh, the railway development levy, which is a, a, a public finance um, sort of support, um, and it's it's a tax, it's a levy on all imports uh, flowing into Kenya. So it's a very interesting structure because you've got your operating costs covered by you know the operating revenues, but you've got the the capital expenditure basically being repaid by. Uh, the railway development levy, and that kind of indicates that, you know, fundamentally the project is not bankable or not kind of financially feasible just with the freight and passenger um, revenues, but was made bankable, was made financially feasible by kind of, uh, you know, introducing this railway development levy that the Kenyan uh, uh, government charges on all imports and is using to subsidize this project. And why are they doing that? I mean, probably they see uh, a stronger economic feasibility or an economic kind of um, rationale to do so and not just be, uh, you know, kind of driven by uh, the intrinsic financial feasibility of this project. So I think that's an important, um, you know, uh, distinction that one should make when you look at projects such as these. 
Vijay, it's very interesting that you bring up the feasibility. There's a paper that I want to draw everybody's attention to. It was written by the late Ian Taylor, Kenya's new lunatic express, the standard gauge railway. It's a fantastic paper. It was one of his last papers that was published before his untimely passing. And it really speaks to this question of the viability and the feasibility that, according to his research, was not there. So this was a poorly planned project, as you're kind of indicating as well. I'd like to wrap up with each of you to give a reflection. You've spent two years looking into this project. You've looked into it probably more than almost anybody else who's not directly involved with it, either from China Exim or from the Kenyan government or the Kenya Railway Corporation. Uh, Laure, let's start with you. What's your big takeaway from this whole exercise? What do you think people should know about this loan between the China Exim Bank and the Standard Gauge Railway based on the research that you did? Well, I think the most important thing that I want to underline is that uh, it's really no use jumping from conclusions um, when looking at a big project only from a small angle. Um, It's important to realize that Uh, This loan agreement would be a a, a fraction of the entire project and the infamous uh, waiver of immunity clause is but one of the ancillary clauses. In fact, the part of the uh, collection of clauses that we lawyers refer to as the boilerplate clauses. So there are really these standards provisions that get dragged into every single one of these agreements. Um, The key message for your listeners is really that In a legal document, every word counts. Uh, It has a very specific meaning under law, and it's not to be misunderstood or misconstrued. Don't uh, think that you understand these words unless you really do, because otherwise you will jump to erroneous conclusions. I mean, I've I've now personally worked on three cases where the same misinterpretations of these clauses come over and over again, and it can be in Nigeria, it can be in Montenegro, it can be in Kenya. So really, you only know when you absolutely sure that you know. <laughs> that would be my key message. Okay, Vijay, how about you? So I would argue that, you know, the capital for development projects and across Africa, for that matter, across, you know, uh, all emerging markets is a very scarce commodity. So I think basically you should welcome capital in any form, in any shape, coming from basically any supplier. But of course, I think what this project probably lacked and 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 what, you know, maybe the Chinese lenders and others could kind of learn from is the process with which you obtain this capital, uh, as well as uh, the transparency around keeping all stakeholders Uh, informed about what you're getting and what you're kind of basically liable for and and what you're securing through the process is important. And that communication around project conceptualization, design, financing, implementation is so very important for these projects to really kind of take off and for more uh, capital to be crowded into this um, very important uh, market. And Deborah, let's leave the last word with you. You've looked at this in a much larger context as somebody who's been studying China-Africa relations for decades. What is your takeaway from this multi-year exercise that you've been embarked in both in Kenya, but when you look at it across the continent writ large? I think I would point to the importance of transparency 
And I have a mixed feelings about this because I think in the case of Montenegro, we do have the loan contract and many of the people who misinterpreted the loan contract also had a copy of it and they didn't have the expertise to actually understand what it said. But I think in the case of Kenya, if the Auditor General had had access to the loan contracts, he would not have made the mistake of uh, interpreting one piece of what he saw to uh, say that Kenya Ports Authority was a borrower on this deal. They were not a borrower on this deal. And that, I think, is one of the key things that we found, that he was actually wrong uh, to come to that conclusion. But if he had had the loan contracts, he would have seen very clearly those definitions. And then if those loan contracts had been available for the Kenyan public, they may not have understand them either. But then the, the government, it would have been up to them to explain these concepts to the people. And, and then the debate could have taken place in a more informed context. The paper is How Africa Borrows from China and Why Mombasa Port is Not Collateral for Kenya Standard Gauge Railway. It was written by Professor Deborah Braudigam at Johns Hopkins University and the founding director of the China-Africa Research Initiative, Vijay Balaki, the co-founder of the global development consulting firm Athena Infonomics, and Laure Durand, a lawyer at Cathay Lex in Paris. Also want to give a shout out to Yin Xuan Wang, who is also a senior research assistant at Kerry, who also contributed to the paper. I want to thank you all for this incredible research. I, I have to tell you that I was a little bit disappointed, though, that when we posted up the report on Twitter and social media, it didn't get much response. And it's one of those things that putting out a lie or putting out a mistruth, especially one that's very provocative, just takes off like fire and everybody wants to talk about it. And then you try and correct the lie and barely anybody shows up. It is just, I guess, the nature of the world we live in today. But it is, uh, we're going to continue to try and get your great work out there. I want to thank all of you, Deborah, Vijay, and Loch, for your great work and for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Always happy to speak with you. Kobus, every time we talk to experts, either like Deborah or Brad Parks at Aid Data or folks in South Africa and Kenya who really know this stuff, one of the, the, the shocking things for me every time we go through this is how the terms of these contracts were not exceptional. They're standard. In fact, a lot of it comes out of Swiss corporate law. A lot of it is standard commercial contract laws, we've, as we've heard over and over again. And yet we're made to feel and believe that somehow what the Chinese are doing with these loan contracts is radically different than, than the norm. And they're, they're highly complex, to be sure, as we heard from all of them. These are not easy contracts, and that's one of the reasons why I think journalists are running into problems telling the story. But again, it's, that's the key thing of just like it's head-shaking to me that so much of what's in these contracts are in contracts from other countries and other companies. They've seen this 50, 50 million times before. And yet it just, it's hard to overstate the freak out that occurs. And that went on for two years in Nigeria over the waiver of sovereign immunity and is starting to resurface again now in the run-up to the presidential election. The same issue of sovereign immunity. That, of course, was the main issue in the Entebbe airport fiasco from last year. And, of course, it all began in Kenya, in Africa. As Deborah mentioned, it all really began with Habendota in Sri Lanka. But 
for Africa's sake, it started in Kenya. So that is that's just perplexing to me. I think this is this really touches on one of the core reasons why I think China Africa relations, China Global South relations, why they are so important to study, is because it. The, the the fact that China is involved defamiliarizes the entire development experience. It defamiliarizes processes that have become very normalized. Normalized to the extent that no one knows how they work. Um, so no one knows how a, a bridge or a, a a railway is is financed unless you happen to be an expert in the in those issues. It's not it's not kind of general public knowledge. Once you throw China in there, it starts to become a, a public issue, and then it, then it raises, it shows, it, it reveals how little one knows about how development actually works. Um, and you know, this is so so to to see that to hear that something is is normal standard practice for commercial kind of infrastructure projects is one thing. But what it then reveals is that we don't know what normal standard practice is for these kind of projects. And this is, you know, the 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 China angle kind of makes it newsworthy. But more specifically, it, what what's really at stake here is for people in the global south to own their own development process, you know, to, to, to work out and to understand how development actually works. And the fact that, that you know, kind of one hears so much about the need for the Global South to develop, like, you know, like that's the only thing you hear about the Global South is, is it, needs to, it needs to develop. And yet we have no idea how development actually works. You know, so, so, so that I think is, is, is one of these kind of like things where you realize like, oh, this is why the China-Africa thing is really important. But let's muster up as much shame and condemnation as we can possibly throw upon the Kenyan and the Chinese governments for this. Because yes, you are right that nobody knows how this works. But in part, nobody knows how it works is because of these non-disclosure clauses in the Chinese contracts that are just absolutely awful, okay, because taxpayers don't get any visibility into what their obligations are. And then the disgusting, shameful behavior of the Kenyan government in, in refusing to make these contracts public. And there's court cases in the High Court of Mombasa right now to be, you know, to, to force open these contracts on the standard gauge railway, but that nobody can see. And we have been documenting, uh, let's see, two ministers, the attorney general, uh, all of them are refusing to reveal the contents of the standard gauge railway contract. And that to me is just beyond shameful. People have a right to know what's in those contracts. Presumably, Kenya is a democracy, right? But then they make up these BS arguments that one day it's about national security, another day it's about bilateral relationships, another day another minister said, oh, well, if we reveal it, then China won't lend to us anymore. Maybe they'll find out that they paid too much. And then, as was pointed out on Spice FM radio in, uh, in, in Nairobi, well, if the people found out that the Kenyan government paid too much, that's kind of something that the people of Kenya should know, right? So, yes, you are right 100% that we should know more about these contracts and we should know more about the process. But when governments do everything in their power to frustrate that, then at the end of the day, they deserve the condemnation, not the people. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, and and I'm, I'm glad to see that the Kenyan government is getting some degree of heat on this issue. Um, but, you know, like, I mean, I, I live in the example of a country where there's a... a, a 
total breakdown of trust between the government and and the people to the extent where anything that the government announces people assume it's a lie um and you know and i think that's true for many african countries um and you know it's it's we will have to see whether this kind of fallout affects them or not. You know, kind of that's another, that's the the downside of the complexity of this is that it's difficult for normal people to, to stay on top of it, you know, kind of, and therefore it's difficult to turn into say an election issue. Um, you know, and, 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 and I think that that becomes, that becomes a kind of a, a, a form of plausible deniability, which allows many politicians to get away with it. And frankly, the Chinese bring a lot of this pain on themselves for their insistence on on refusing to be transparent, not even a little bit. And they have not evolved their thinking on this in the 20 years that they've been doing this. In the 20 years of loans that Boston University tracks on their website, there has not been much progress at all in Chinese transparency on lending and the contract uh, transparency. And so frankly, if people you know come to these completely garbage conclusions – well, the Chinese have not done anything like what the debt management office in Nigeria does, where they clearly lay out, here is what's owed, here is what their loans are for, these are the terms, these are the interest rates. Very simple, very, very simple. And the Nigerian debt management office de- deserves an enormous amount of praise for doing what they do. But the Chinese should be doing the same thing. And so a lot of this, you know, don't pity the Chinese when everybody goes after them and they're always whining and whinging about how, you know, the debt trap narrative is something that, you know, keeps bob, you know, bothering them for year after year and everybody hates the Chinese and there's an agenda from Western media, blah, blah, blah. It's their fault because all they have to do is to put up a wonderful website saying chinalens.com, <laughs> Okay. And all they got to do is start putting out, here are the terms of the, of the contracts. They won't do that, of course. But until they do that, I don't really feel that sorry for them. Well, I think, you know, then it becomes it becomes worthwhile. And I think maybe we, we can do this in, in, in a future um, podcast to really unpack why they don't, right? Kind of like, like what are all of the different factors involved, including issues like, for example, different the, 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 the nature of, of the complexity of, of the, the number of Chinese lenders involved, what they're trying to avoid, you know, by, by, by imposing all of, this, all of this opacity, because they have their reasons, right? Kind of they're paying a, a, a steep political price for it, and they're definitely paying a soft power price for it. And this, this narrative has been incredibly useful to, 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 to kind of to Chinese, to critics of China around the world. You know, it's, they've been riding the debt trap train for, for five years at least. And they continue to ride it. Yes. They, boy, that is the gift that just keeps on giving, yes. right? So, you know, so the Chinese have their reasons, for for the opacity, but those those reasons need to be unpacked, you know, and and, and it it yeah, like it, it's really interesting, and it will be very interesting to see whether it changes, because that's the one thing about the Chinese is that they you know that they can be very pragmatic about these issues, and they they can pivot if if if, if things become un- uncomfortable for them. So it'll be interesting to see if they do. Two key points on this: number one, while I'm singling out the Chinese right now, you and I have spoken with a number of experts on this issue over the years who say, while the Chinese are more extreme than other lenders, they are by no means exceptional. So the lack of transparency in loans is also a Western problem. The irony of ironies that those sitting on their high and mighty soapboxes in, in London, Brussels, in Washington, and, and elsewhere are saying that the Chinese aren't transparent, yet you know we don't know a whole lot about 
U.S. Exim Bank lending and whatnot. Now, we can file Freedom of Information Acts and eventually get access to some of the data, sure, but it's not really that transparent either. And we've heard that over and over again. The Chinese are an extreme case on this. The second part, in terms of the question as to why, is in part because, and again, I'm speaking just theoretically here, I don't have any insight on this per se, but it is the fact that China is not used to public accountability in its own political system. And so for the idea then to turn around and to show an enormous amount of public accountability when it operates overseas, well, that's difficult for them because simply because they haven't had the training, the expertise, they don't have the systems in place for that kind of transparency in their own political system. They're trying to do that now with institutions like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, where they have agreed to adhere to international standards and also the new development bank in Shanghai. They're also adhering to international standards, but they're not doing it for their own bilateral and domestic initiative. So to me, it's just because they come from a political system where that is not something that they've developed any expertise over the years in being transparent. So so that's my thought. But let's let's take a look for the rest of the week. Okay, so we've got the new debt data that came out today from Boston University. We've got the Zambia issue. We've got this new Kenya report. Concerns are mounting in Nigeria, again, in the media and in the public that are not really well grounded in data. Very quickly before we go, give us a quick update on the presidential election campaign and the role that Chinese debt is playing in the politics there. Yeah, it's very interesting to 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 track this. Um, we've seen this uh, this flurry of misinformation coming out around Rotimi Amaeche, who's is uh, the the minister currently the minister of transport in Nigeria, but is a strong contender for the presidential election, um, and clearly he's making some people anxious um, in 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 Nigeria because there's been s- suddenly quite a lot of of paid disinformation circulating through the the Nigerian press trying to link him to China, trying to say that, that, that the Chinese government is paying for his candidacy, and then kind of trying to kind of connect him to this 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 information that that the Chinese are going to seize, you know, fill in the blank asset. Um, so, you know, kind of in the last series of articles that's been widely reprinted in in, in Nigeria, we saw that um, we saw disinformation about about Chinese asset seizures in Zambia, um, like that 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 Deborah referred to, actually being resurrected in this disinformation and saying, oh, the same thing is going to happen in Nigeria. So it's this kind of perfect storm of different kinds of disinformation being now used to smear this this presidential candidate. So it's it's, it's fascinating to see this in action. It'll be interesting to see how he hits back against that. And it was interesting because two of the reports that we identified were literally listed by Premium Times, which is one of the major national newspapers, as promoted content and as a press release. So they weren't even hiding the fact that this was paid disinformation, and yet it was just filled with lots of of lies and mistruths there. The Chinese embassy came out very strongly a couple of weeks ago to set the record straight when uh, this really small newspaper, Al Jazeera, which is not the Mideast Al Jazeera, but it's a northern Nigeria newspaper, uh, had a front page cover story that the Chinese government is backing Amechi for the presidency. That is not true. The embassy came out with a statement saying they don't do that. That is not the Chinese playbook to get involved in domestic politics like that. Uh, the Chinese, that's just not their MO. And so this is, if you see this going on, just a heads up, it's not true. And this is one of the frustrations of trying to follow some of these stories it's very hard to separate what's real and what's not. But that's what we do every day. Uh, We've got a great team of journalists around 
uh, Africa and the Middle East now who are putting together our, our reports in Arabic and in French. And Cobus is running the English service and the English newsletter with, uh, with Chris, who's in Cape Town with us, putting together that newsletter. It's a fantastic piece of, of journalism every day. If you'd like to subscribe, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. We would appreciate your support of the work that we're doing now. Again, we have a small team of journalists in, in also in China as well. So it's really, uh, it's, it's a very exciting time for us. And uh, we've got some big announcements coming up next month, which will kind of tease a little bit in the next weeks ahead. Cobus is starting to work on some essays to kind of lay the groundwork for what we'll be announcing. So we've had a very busy year so far with the launch of our new sites, new podcasts. Also, as you heard early in the show, I want to give a shout out to Francophone editor and host of the Afrique Chine podcast, Jérôme. Please do subscribe to his podcast if you speak French or you want to practice French. It is a fantastic discussion that he's having all about issues in Francophone Africa. Kobus, let's leave the conversation there for now. We'll be back again later in the week with another episode. Until then, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.